Chapter Eleven of The Whispering Man by Henry Kitchell Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. Ten minutes left. For the next moment or two, there was no time to think. We were confronted, as the saying goes, by a condition and not a theory, the temporarily lifeless condition of the pallid young beauty who lay there on the floor at our feet. Beside the imperative necessity of doing something, I was conscious only of a feeling of rather childish irritation that in this emergency, as in so many others, Mr. Stancliffe should prove a more competent man than I. He knew what to do, and he did it, while I stood busily around doing nothing, or at least accomplishing nothing. The moment the fluttering eyelids and the tremulously indrawn breath gave a hint of returning consciousness, my friend turned to me with a brisk word of command. "'Open the door,' said he, "'and call in that policeman from the reception room. Then the two of you together carry this couch out into the outer room. We'll put her on it and give her a chance to get her strength and her wits together again before we ask her any further questions.' why take her out there i asked because i want to talk things over with you privately and it would be inhuman to leave her in here alone not only inhuman but possibly dangerous but out there the policeman can keep an eye on her without seeming to when we had left her comfortably ensconced on the couch under the curious eye of the policeman who had a hint that it would be as well to keep his eye upon her we withdrew once more into that horrible inner office how in the world i asked when the door closed behind us did you happen to think of it the trap i mean why said he i had noticed the mirror myself when i was in here earlier that morning when i read in her testimony that she looked at the clock as she was opening the door i thought it possible that she was merely lying then as i thought further about it the mirror occurred to me and i saw that she might think that she was telling the truth and think also that she was perfectly safe in doing so the interval between her going out and the finding of the body being sufficient to allow for the commission of the crime Well said i regretfully you have made your case oh by no means he protested that's what the police thought when they found pomeroy's imitation ruby that's what the district attorney thought when he heard about armstrong's hypodermic needle we haven't our case yet by any means but the first thing to do is to find out exactly what we have got not what we are able to guess at but what we actually know the first thing is a complete alibi for armstrong he was in the instrument shop downstairs at a quarter past twelve and she didn't leave here until twenty minutes past unless i suggested the murder was the result of a conspiracy between them unless the two of them were in here together that won't hold water said mr stancliffe after a moment's thought if they had been in a conspiracy and both been deliberately lying on the stand the matter of time would have been their first concern she might have sworn as she did that she had left at twenty minutes to twelve but she would have known better and would certainly have evaded my trap 
besides it seems to me it was in its essence a single-handed crime if both of them had been in the room neither would have been able to get into a relative position with their victim which would have made the needle thrust possible no we have cleared the doctor absolutely i suppose you are right in saying the case isn't complete against her but upon my soul it looks complete enough she was in here for an hour we know that her visit was not an ordinary professional one we know there was some relation between them which has not yet been explained by the marshals she went away unseen and unheard and ten minutes afterwards dr marshall was found murdered you have stated right there the two things we need to make the case complete first what was her personal relation with the marshals was it one that would supply a possible motive for the murder a well-bred young woman does not deliberately kill a man until she is urged to by some very strong compulsion we need a motive and we haven't got it that in the first place and in the second place my dear young friend we must account for that last ten minutes before we can sit back and say our case is altogether complete what could possibly have happened in so short a time as that i asked don't you remember said he that both the telephone operator and dr armstrong spoke of the murdered man as having had an appointment at twelve o'clock an important appointment neither of them was asked what that appointment was it is true but isn't it likely if they had known what it was they would have volunteered the information it is possible at any rate that both these witnesses are in the dark as to the nature of that important appointment at twelve o'clock both of them assumed that he was going out to keep it but both of them might be mistaken however we are distinctly making progress dr marshall was alive at half-past eleven at half-past twelve he was dead for fifty minutes of the hour that poor young girl out there in the reception-room was in here with him for the remaining ten minutes dead or alive he was alone so far as we know without another word to me he opened the door and stepped out into the reception-room looking over his shoulder i saw that miss carr had left the couch and was sitting in an easy-chair near one of the windows we don't want to cause you one moment of unnecessary distress mr stancliffe was saying to her and his words in spite of the harsh whispered quality of his voice or voicelessness rather sounded gentle however if you feel able to answer a few more questions i am sure you can help us and i think it not unlikely that we can help you also since we cannot dismiss the policeman i would suggest that we go back into the inner office she agreed to that without demur so back we went and once more the door was shut behind us somewhat to my surprise mr stancliffe whispered to me that i had better take charge of the interrogation and it seemed reasonable enough when i came to think of it he had questioned her before had led her into a trap and he was in her mind nothing but a detective by comparison with him at any rate i would seem like a friend she would probably find my questions easier to answer frankly and fully than she would his 
if i ask anything miss carr i began that you don't want to answer you must say so this isn't an inquisition at all we both feel that you can tell us more than you have told anyone yet about your interview with dr marshall we noticed that you evaded telling the coroner in so many words that your consultation with the doctor was a professional one it wasn't professional she said it was quite personal i went to him as a patient simply because he had already declined to see me on other terms was your purpose in seeking that interview anything that you can confide to us yes i think i can i think it will be her voice broke there but she swallowed hard and pressed her lips together and presently commanded it again a relief to tell it to somebody but don't you know about it already you have talked with jack young mr marshall i mean hasn't he told you what in the world has he to do with it i asked at her answer i felt like a man looking into a kaleidoscope who sees a pattern that had looked very complete and symmetrical suddenly change at the mere touch of a finger into something altogether different for the significance and connection of every detail of the whole mystery suddenly took on a different aspect i was engaged to marry him she said for an instant my mind stood still then it went racing back in the swiftest review of the mystery as it looked with this new light thrown upon it one thing at least was plainly accounted for this was jack marshall's demeanour during the twenty-four hours that followed the discovery of the murder i remembered his half-hysterical laugh when he had said he wished that suicide was a teenable theory i remembered his astonishment which at the time i had thought to be assumed over my own suspicions of his stepmother i remembered the perfectly ghastly look in his face when he had waited for me in the corridor after the inquest and from it all one inference was horribly clear namely that jack himself had believed had gone on believing until merciful delirium had sponged out thought altogether that this girl his fiancée the woman he loved had murdered his father after a little silence she went on speaking it isn't quite true that i was engaged to him i had refused to be refused to marry him unless his father would consent i cared too much for him to run the risk of wrecking his life and his prospects that way do you mean i asked earnestly that you think it would injure him well in a broad sense socially to marry she completed the sentence for me marry a girl who was working at a manicure table in the barber shop of the st anthony hotel yes i do don't you think i was right well i supposed she was although the impulse to say not if that girl happened to be you was a strong one i evaded answering was that your occupation when jack marshall made your acquaintance yes she said he came in to have his fingernails attended to and i did the work for him she hesitated a moment and then added i shouldn't have chosen that way of earning a living if i had had exactly my choice do you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself 
i asked it's not mere impertinent curiosity oh i am curious i admit but that is not why i asked the question we are really pretty sadly perplexed mr stancliffe and i of course i don't mind telling you she said you are quite right to ask i spent the first eighteen years of my life in louisville kentucky and i was brought up with no idea of ever earning my living at all i can't remember either of my parents they both died when i was quite a little thing and the only relative i had was an uncle he always seemed to have plenty of money and he let me have my own way and do what i pleased when i came to new york to learn to sing it was not with any idea of earning a living it was partly fun and partly ambition but the ambition was perfectly real and for the two years that i studied i made progress enough to keep it alive i worked hard but i had a good time and i spent my allowance which was liberal religiously every month and then one day when my check should have come it didn't and the next weekly letter that i expected from my uncle didn't come either a week after that a letter did come from a lawyer saying that my uncle was dead and that there were no funds to continue the allowance he had been sending me i had nothing at all but my clothes and some loose change so i had to do something right away i suppose i might have got a position in the chorus of one of the light opera companies but you see i really wanted to learn to sing and i didn't want to wear my voice out in one of the musical broadway shows and then well in other ways that sort of work seemed rather more distasteful than the only other thing i could think of doing i did know how to take care of fingernails i had done it for fun for the girls at home i had to decide pretty quickly there wasn't anything else to do and there wasn't any time for looking about so the very day i got the lawyer's letter i applied for work at the st anthony hotel and got it i had to check a disposition to applaud the quality i most admire both in men and women the quality of courage shone out so splendidly in this simple little recital there was no word of lament over her fallen fortunes no disposition to parade the thing she had done as any special virtue she told it as if what she had done had been the simplest thing in the world just what anyone else in her circumstances would have done it must have been frightfully hard for you i observed oh it wasn't easy she assented i had to tell myself every night about the thousands of other girls alone here in new york who had to do just what i did who had to earn their living and whose fate didn't matter to any single soul in all the city besides themselves i had to brace myself up for every day and every day at first i found that i just about lasted until it was over how long had you been at it i asked when you met jack it was just a year ago day before yesterday she said that he came down there into the barber shop for the first time and sat down at the other side of my little glass table her words 
unexpectedly to herself it seemed touched some chord of memory whose vibrations destroyed for a moment the even self-control with which up to now she had told her story her eyes filled suddenly with tears and her voice faltered she sat quite still for a moment holding fast to the arms of her chair and pressing her trembling lips together letting her tears run as they would down her cheeks finally she dried her eyes and sat a little straighter in her chair it was about two weeks ago she said when i told him i would marry him if he could get his father to consent to it he was to tell his father that we would not marry without his consent he didn't much want to do it that way his plan was that we should be married and get his father's forgiveness afterwards for he was afraid though he would not admit it at the time that things would fall out exactly as they did so at last he told his father about it and told him quite frankly who i was and what i was how i was earning my living i mean dr marshall not only refused his consent to jack's marriage but he declined absolutely to see me jack believed she faltered a little over the words believed that if he could only see me and talk with me it would make a difference it was his suggestion jack's i mean that i should go to dr marshall as a patient and then tell him who i was and and all about myself i could do that there was there is nothing that i am ashamed to tell anybody so you carried out your plan i prompted her came in and told dr marshall who you were what happened then she shuddered and covered her face with her hands it will be easy to imagine the feelings with which we waited for her to go on finally i prompted her again the interview didn't go as you and jack had hoped it would we can see that and we can imagine that it is painful for you to talk about it but if you can tell us i wish you would she looked up straight into my face her cheeks were faintly flushed as if with anger and her eyes were shining i can't tell you what he said it was unrepeatable unspeakable i can't make you understand the utter brutality of it he took it for granted the moment he knew who i was that all i wanted was money that i was simply a blackmailer oh i can't tell you the words he used the things he really did say i wanted to go away but he wouldn't let me ordered me back into my chair and told me to listen and then it went on and on until i was too sick with disgust to try to answer him or to go or to do anything but to sit there with my hands over my ears i didn't kill dr marshall but i was angry enough too if he had talked that way to a man that man would have strangled him as he sat there when i got up to go i wished i was dead i didn't want to marry jack i felt that i never wanted to see him again that i should never be able to forget whose son he was but all the time he was waiting for me at the foot of the elevators waiting with high hopes i knew and i had to go down and face him and tell him he took me somewhere to lunch i don't remember where and i tried not to say a word until i was cool again but thinking about it and trying to talk about it brought all my anger back as it brings it now and then what was worst of all i could see that jack didn't believe me he was trying to but he couldn't 
couldn't believe that his father could have done such a thing so we parted very unhappily i think he was as utterly miserable as i was and i went back to work at the st anthony hotel i didn't know dr marshall was dead until i heard them talking about it the men who were reading the evening papers in the barber shop and when i heard he was dead i was glad i was almost glad when i heard that the thief pomeroy had murdered him i felt that he deserved it i think you know the rest i left the st anthony the evening after the inquest i was discharged jack came up there just after i had gone and followed me out to flatbush where the woman lives who has as best she could been a mother to me since i came up to new york with a lot of ambitious notions of becoming a great singer i shall never forget jack's face as it looked when i saw him that night and i found out then he told me he had to tell me that he believed i had murdered his father he could hardly have helped thinking that i can understand it now because he was waiting for me and he knew what time it really was when i came down in the elevator and he thought he had to think that i had lied in my testimony at the inquest he begged me that night to tell him the truth i heard nothing more from him at all when you sent up your card to me to-night i remembered that you were the man who had come up with him to his father's office that night we identified pomeroy and i thought that you had come to tell me that he was dead too that's what i meant by asking if you had any news for me she leaned back in her chair with a little air of relaxation and drew a long breath or two to steady herself i can't thank you enough she said for bringing me down here and clearing up that mystery about the clock i am so glad you thought of that it never would have occurred to me mr stancliff deserves the credit for it said i he was standing at the window staring out for the recital must have moved him greatly as it had me his gloved hands were clasped over the head of his stick and he was leaning back upon it he did not look around nor make any answer just stood there gazing out over the housetops i have something to hope for now the girl concluded i hope jack may not die without knowing that i told the truth the thought that had come so persistently that first night of the murder came back to me if only we could find someone endowed with the power which jeffrey had claimed for himself the power of reaching the truth not by the devious ways of evidence but by the straight short cut of inspiration for the logic of fact and circumstance had led us into a hopeless bog and left us there not a half hour ago mr stancliff had said that one of the two things which we needed was a motive well we had it the girl had confessed to it her interview with the doctor had been personal had led into a violent quarrel on his part at any rate the girl had said in so many words that she was glad when she heard that he was dead glad almost when she learned that he had been murdered she had left him and gone away from that scene only ten minutes before he had been found dead her story would admit of no halfway acceptance 
if the crime had been one of violence in the ordinarily accepted sense if the doctor had been stabbed with a knife which happened to be lying on the desk or even shot with a revolver it might be possible to credit a considerable part of her story and still believe that she had committed the crime it would be conceivable that a brutally insulting attack such as the doctor had made upon her had brought on an emotional convulsion during which she had killed him without premeditation and almost without consciousness of what she was doing but the means that had been taken to accomplish the doctor's murder showed an almost fiendish amount of foresight which could be reconciled with no single word of the girl's story no she was either lying from the first word to the last lying with every look in her eyes and every gesture of her hands or else she was telling the simple truth yet either one of these alternatives led it seemed to an impossible conclusion well we had still the ten minutes left would that suffice a mere six hundred seconds to bridge the gap between the point where our belief in her story left us and the staring face of the dead thing which the telephone girl saw sitting in what had been his office chair it was like mr stancliffe that he wasted no time in such unprofitable speculations that ten minutes was there and he went to work upon it at once when you came out of the office into the corridor miss carr are you sure that you drew the door to behind you as i remember your testimony you said dr marshall did not leave his desk i am sure i locked it she said i pulled on the knob until i heard it click and then pushed back to make sure you met no one spoke to no one while you were waiting for the elevator no sir his next question surprised me were you ever hypnotized never that i know of she answered then you never were he said decisively this talk of people being hypnotized for the first time unconsciously or against their will is rubbish he took a turn up and down the room well he said at last i think of nothing else to ask you she rose and walked swiftly toward the door into the reception-room opened it and went out without closing it behind her mr stancliffe and i exchanged an inquiring glance in the face of all the suspicious circumstances which existed against her had we any right to let her go out to flatbush or to take her out there and leave her until we had provided some means of keeping her under surveillance i don't know i whispered answering his unspoken question i don't know what to believe or where to turn do as you think best about it he nodded and then without telling me his decision went out into the reception-room where the girl was waiting for us i am afraid i rather ran away she said that room will always be a chamber of horrors to me i fear she was pinning on her hat which we had removed clumsily enough when she fainted and she paused long enough to find the right hole for the hat-pin it isn't the sight of it that bothers me so much it's that odour of tobacco somehow that brings it all back she had been speaking to me now she turned to mr stancliffe are you letting me go home she asked just leaving my word with you that i'll come whenever and wherever you want me 
or would you feel better about it if you she did not finish the sentence but a glance at the half-dormant policeman supposed to be on watch completed her meaning no he said your word is all we want i nodded with a feeling of relief then said i cheerfully we'd better be starting on it's getting late oh i shan't allow anyone to go with me she protested that's too horribly far away from town to take a new yorker as you like said i i'll put you on your car anyway in that case said mr stancliffe i'll say good-night to both of you and remain here for a little there are a few more matters i want to look into and now is a good opportunity shall i come back i inquired no said he if i come upon anything of importance i'll telephone you it is too late to get armstrong out of the tombs to-night but that can be the first thing on our programme to-morrow morning as we were going out into the corridor she paused once more and turned back to include mr stancliffe in what she had to say i can't tell how i thank you it's been such a relief to tell it all and especially to get that maddening misunderstanding about the time cleared up i am going to sleep to-night all by myself without the help of a bromide i haven't done that since she finished the sentence with a little gesture i hope so indeed mr stancliffe said then he added you are quite sure you don't mind going alone not a bit what's more i shan't go by the subway it's much too fine a night if any one went with me i should feel that i had to take the quickest way i hadn't the faintest intention of letting her go out to flatbush alone but i said nothing it would be much easier to waive argument and simply clamber on to the car when it came along end of chapter eleven